preparation for um, speaking, I spent considerable time kind of researching and trying to reflect on this topic because it's a tough topic. And I came to a brilliant conclusion. People die with amazing regularity. That's what I figured out. I mean, throughout history, everyone has lived and died with the exception of Enoch and Elijah. And I worked hard to get at that conclusion, which I think probably reveals something about my study habits, but um, that's another day. I want you to flash forward 100 years from now. I think it's safe to say that none of us will be here. I mean, you can disagree with me. Maybe you're the exception. You may be right. But I personally believe that it's a pretty safe assumption that we won't be here. And here's the question. How do you feel about that? I mean, I know, having talked to people, that we do not like to think about this. We do not like to talk about this. We absolutely do not want to face the fact that someday that uninvited guest of death is going to knock at your door and mine. And it has become increasingly uh, apparent to me that as a culture, as a society, that we do whatever we can to keep us from concentrating on this inescapable reality. It's not true of past cultures. I mean, many cultures, in fact, most, uh, functioned with kind of one eye on eternity and the other eye on on the present. In the past, as you look at culture, there seemed to be kind of an integration between uh, living and living with dying, an understanding, facing the possibilities, talking about it. But I'm not sure that's true today. You know, since the beginning of time, I mean, the cradle of, of civilization, if you look at the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they seriously taught on this uh, topic of, of death. They, they talked about that there would be a point when, when we die that we'd go into another world below the earth, that it would be a miserable kind of existence, that there were a few privileged rulers that occasionally would get to exit that that cavern and go to the shores of what they called a a pleasant island, Um, the Egyptian culture. Uh, They they are noted for having a preoccupation with the afterlife. Uh, Cindy and I had the opportunity to tour there several years ago and uh, actually got to crawl through the passageways of some of the pyramids. And I'll tell you, the, the uh, artistry was, was incredible. Uh, as you begin to hear and see their attention to detail and the contents in the tombs, it was kind of mind-blowing. Uh, I heard it took 100,000 people 25 years to build a, a pyramid. And what were the pyramids used for? They were tombs. I mean, they stand as testimony to a culture that was preoccupied with the afterlife. 
You know, Greek philosophers, they, they argued that the, the soul is indestructible, that the body fades, but the soul lives on. The Aztecs, Toltecs, the Incas, South and Central America, they, they built extraordinary uh, kind of monuments to, that were um, compatible with their understanding of the afterlife. God says in his word, Ecclesiastes 3, the writer says, God has set eternity in the human heart. You know, I think we've always known, I mean, at a, at a gut level, that life goes beyond the grave. I mean, not only in history, but if you read the philosophers, the poets, they, they remind us of this fact. I mean, once in a while you got a guy like uh, Mark Twain. People love to quote him, you know. You take heaven, I'd rather go to the Bermuda, you know. <laughs> but the fact is, they're trying to make light of something so real. You know, I talk to people, they go, oh, well, it's like a candle goes out. And I, I love the people that when you talk about life and death, uh, they're, they're kind of like, well, eat, drink, be merry, you know, tomorrow you might die, who, you know, ha, ha, ha. And it's almost this, hey, check it out, I'm kind of tough, I can just kind of push it aside, it doesn't really bother me. And I want to tell you something, I don't buy that. I just don't buy that. And, and my point is that cultures in the past had a constant and proper emphasis on the reality of death. And it's not true in the generations today, especially in, in the United States. We don't have time for it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it because there's a life to be lived and it just gets in the way. You know, we, we've got this mentality that, uh, like, I'm always going to be young. True? Is that true? Is that a fair statement? I mean, when I was seven years old, I thought I was young. When I was 17, I thought I was young. When I was 27, I thought I was young. When I was 37, I thought I was young. I'm 47, and I'm here to tell you, I still think I'm young. Some of you are 57, 67, 77, and let me tell you, I'm not young, and you're not young. Isn't that the mentality, honest? You know, I'm young. I'm not going to die. I mean, now, Harry might die. And Mary did die. That's kind of a fluke. But I'm not going to die. You know, I started this by saying that I had a brilliant conclusion. People die with amazing regularity, and then we add in our mind, it just doesn't include me. And friends, sooner or later, we're all going to find out. We're all going to find out. Another thing that, that fascinates me is that no matter how much money I've got, how much power I've got, how much clout I've got, it doesn't change the fact that I'm going to die. You know, death's kind of the uh, uh, equalizer, the great equalizer in life. I mean, that person might have a larger funeral. They may have a fancier casket. 
may have a bigger headstone. But here's the fact. We're going to have the same exact conclusion. And another thing that, that has struck me as I was studying was, do you know 50,000 to 60,000 people die every week in the United States? But here's what I find curious. When I talk to people, spend time with people, if the topic comes up, rarely when I'm talking to them, do I find someone that's ever been with someone that's died. They weren't there. Why is that? Why is that? I mean, see, I think that as a culture, we have made a very conscious effort to kind of insulate ourselves from the reality of death. And not only do we not want to be present when someone's dying, but there's kind of a growing discomfort with the elderly, the terminally ill. And my observation, and I wish it wasn't this, but my observation has been that when someone's dying and they're in those last hours, and this is sad commentary here, but many times close friends, family, even spouses have chosen not to be in the room when a loved one dies. Don't ever let that happen. But again, I think there's this fear that forces people or they begin to kind of isolate themselves. And I think part of the reason for the fear is, first of all, a gross lack of knowledge on the subject. It's kind of a catch-22 because the more we insulate ourselves, the less we know. And the less we know, the more we fear and because we're afraid of facing it, talking about it, this event that awaits us all, it gets all twisted. I mean, so what, what happens? What happens when you die? When I die? You know, when we take our last breath on this planet, and we take our first breath in eternity. I mean, what's, what's on that eye calendar that day? That moment that the heart stops beating. You know, the, the Bible describes in very, very much detail what is going to take place that day. That moment when we say goodbye to this world. You know, that meeting is going to be the most important meeting you will ever have in your life. You know, Scripture says who's going to be there, what's coming to the table, what the goal of that meeting is. Everything surrounding that, that day, that moment. Curious, how many, how many business people work in the business world, you know, where you have meetings? How many of you go to meetings and stuff like that? Okay. All right. 
if you have a meeting, especially what I'll call the big ones, what do you, what do, you do? Well, you usually do your homework, try and figure out what's coming to the table, what the implications are, what the issues are, what the goals are, what, what the possibilities are. Why do you do that? Because you want to be prepared, right? And here's what strikes me. The most important meeting that we will ever face in our, in our entire being is a meeting that's going to take place after we die. You know, one day our, our head's going to kind of be spinning, and we're going to be searching for answers, and we're going to be very ill-prepared for that day. And even though the Bible is very explicit of what to expect, what to prepare for, I mean, what is the agenda that day? You know, several years ago, uh, Mel Blanc uh, died. He's the creator of uh, Porcus Pigus. Do you know what I'm talking about? When he died, you know what they put on his tombstone? Any guesses? Yeah, that's all, folks. You know, for a guy that did over a thousand different voices, um, that's probably his most famous line. And I think, I think it's, it's a great, it uh, makes for a great uh, statement. But it's not true. It's not true when it comes to death because there is more. There's more. I mean, there's the resurrection. Paul writes and or it's written about Paul, says, I have the same hope in God as these people themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. We will be resurrected in a, in a moment. In the moment that we leave this world and we go to the next in eternity, in that moment, we will be resurrected. It's not going to be a holding tank, not going to be a green room. The moment you die, eternity. Now, I know, because I've talked to too many people through, through the years, I know that some people go, well, you know, I, I don't really buy that stuff. I, I think that we just cease to exist. Other people are like, well, you know, once, once we die... Um, We'll be reincarnated. And I believe we're going to kind of a holding tank and we're going to be recycled at some point. Uh, maybe come back as like Bill Gates' son. That'd be cool. Well, don't get excited about that because that's not going to happen. Friends, our soul is going to be resurrected. The true essence of who we are will be resurrected immediately. How do I know there's life after the grave? You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that points that direction. I mean, you look at nature. You know, the death always gives way to life in, in nature. You, you take a seed, for instance. It looks dead. You bury it in the ground. You figure that's it. And what happens? It germinates. It grows. A plant springs forth. You know, I think about a caterpillar. You know, it crawls around. Honestly, ugly, ugly little creature, right? But one day it kind of uh, creates a cocoon. Uh, you know, you might say shrouds itself in a, in a tomb-like existence. 
and you look at it and you think, that homely insect, it's over. And then you've got a beautiful butterfly that comes forward. You look at, at physics. Albert Einstein, who arguably one of the smartest, well-educated men. And he says, matter, matter changes state, but it will not be created or destroyed. And many people who have studied the, the first law of thermodynamics feel that it is a clue that there's life after death. That we will change states, but will not be destroyed. The philosophers, almost across the board, when you, when you read them, they agree there's something more than this world. They have arrived at that conclusion, studying humanity and, and cultures for, for ages. And they've come to that conclusion because they said, you know, there is a marked code of ethics deep in the DNA that's not an accident. It's pointing to something greater, something beyond. Anthropologists come to the same conclusion. And we talked, I talked earlier about that. Just uh, you, you look at cultures and, and tribes. Every culture, every society has a sense that there is an ever after, that there's an existence beyond this. They have an advanced view of the afterlife. Then add to that near-death experiences. I found it interesting. I really ran across stuff I didn't know. But uh, Gallup poll recently, 8 million Americans claim to have had a near-death experience. Now, as I read that, look, I understand that there may be people that are kind of fraudulent. They say they've had it and didn't. But consider this. Statistically, people that it has been documented that they died, across the board, 100% people that have had near-death experiences that have been documented came back an entirely different person. They changed their life. They reprioritized, and they made big changes in response to an eternal reality. In eternity, there's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. In other words, everyone. And we're going to be caught in, in a meeting. And the purpose of the meeting is judgment. We have a scheduled appointment to sit before the throne of God. The Hebrews writers writes, says, people have to die once. And after that, God will judge them. I mean, what's the deciding factor in that judgment? Friends, I'll tell you, this is where people get spiritually confused. I mean, if you listen to the word on the street, I mean, word on the street is that God's going to lower the bar. I mean, word on the street is God's going to ratchet down his holiness. You know, word on the street is God's going to turn to the masses, kind of wink, and go, hey, you gave it a try. Come on in. Welcome. Heaven. Now, now watch out if you're Hitler or like a serial killer or something like that. 
But if you're just an average person, did a few good things in your life, maybe bought some Girl Scout cookies, coached a little league game, all's good. Word on the street. Jesus said word on the street is wrong. Whether I'm a good person, whether I've tried to keep my nose clean, whether I've did all kinds of great things and good things, that will not be part of the agenda at the judgment. You can stand there and go, hey, I was confirmed. I was baptized. I'm in a small group. I serve at my church every week. My grandfather was Billy Graham. My grandmother was Mother Teresa. All fine and good. But friends, it's not part of the agenda. It's not part of our meeting with our creator. How many of you have ever had the experience of being in a meeting that you are not prepared for? You're not ready for that meeting. I've been there too many times. I mean, it knocks you back on your heels. It, it makes me lose my equilibrium a little bit. And if it's a big meeting and the stakes are really high, I'll tell you, I panic. I panic. I start grasping for straws. And friends, that's the way it's going to be for too many people when they meet God that day. Because they've been duped. Been duped into thinking that God's going to grade on kind of a performance plan. Or that God's going to go with the national average, you know, go with a cosmic curve or something. And the reality is, God is simply going to stand on his holiness. And when he does that, we are all sin-stained. Compared to God's holiness, I'm in trouble and you're in trouble. And God's going to look at one thing, and one thing only at that meeting. God's going to look at your life and mine, and he's going to see if there has been a transaction that has taken place. And that transaction is going to be, what did you do with his son, Jesus Christ? You know, if we accept what, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that's it. That's all. That's all God's going to look at. The Bible says that when we become a Christian, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not something we deserve. It's not something I can earn or you can earn. It is an absolute free gift that God gives Ephesians 1.13 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the words of truth, the gospel of what? Your salvation. Word of truth. That's what you're hearing right now. You know, God's using my voice to share the gospel. It was true when Paul wrote those words. It's true now. Hearing the gospel is a personal thing that absolutely requires a personal acceptance of it. Paul says the transaction's there. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? Having believed, you're marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. When you make that defining moment decision 
to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, God stamps you with a seal. Transaction complete at that point. All my sins, my guilt, my shame, it's transferred over to Jesus. And in return, God takes all of his forgiveness and his grace and transfers it over to me or to you. That's very simplistic. But that's what it is. How many of you have ever bought something online? Yeah. The other other day, uh, my uh, granddaughter, she was wanting this pink pony, one of these Webkin things. I got on the, online, and there were two left, and then there was only one left, and I'm trying to get my order in, and I mean, it was driving me crazy, and for some reason, everything was going slow, and the process wasn't happening very good, and finally, on my computer screen, it flashes those words I wanted to see, transaction complete. And I thought, great, it's mine. Then I find out she already got it. <laughs> so I got a pink pony now. So When you look at the screen of your life, what does it say? Transaction complete? Or incomplete. Friends, when it is complete, you are marked with a seal. You know, God takes possession of your life. You belong to him. Paul goes on in the next verse. He says, who is a deposit? Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. When we take that step, the seal is placed on our lives to say transaction is completed. And God takes possession of our lives. We now belong to God. And then the Holy Spirit begins to move. The Holy Spirit is placed inside us. The moment we take that step, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit to let us know it's okay. You know, the Greek word for deposit, it's got a dual meaning. And it's pretty broad meaning. But basically, it's the first idea is earnest money. That's the literal translation for deposit. It's earnest money. When, when we bought the land out here to build the church on, we had to put up earnest money. And basically that money was proof to the, the people we were buying from that we intended to purchase it. The Holy Spirit is earnest money that God is going to pay in full. That you, Friends, you can take that one to the bank. I mean, you can. The, the other idea of deposit is engagement ring. I always love it when people get engaged around here throughout my whole ministry because it goes something like this. <laughs> Guess what? I always play again. Every time it happens, even my daughter, when, it, when she told me, I'm like, oh, you got your nails done. 
really, really nice color. And then usually they can't contain themselves. I, I, I got engaged. Oh, I didn't know. I had no idea, you know. You know but Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. We as Christians become the bride. And we are given the Holy Spirit as the engagement ring. It's a promise of a permanent, eternal relationship with God for all eternity. Transaction complete. Or is it incomplete? Big question. There's one more thing that the Bible says is going to happen that day. The Bible describes how Jesus is going to separate things. Matthew, Jesus says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat. Jesus is going to separate When we take that breath on the other side of eternity, he's going to separate. And it's either going to be heaven or hell. Heaven. We like talking about heaven. You know, heaven's going to be more than we can imagine. In fact, I want you to think about the best day you've ever had. I want you to think about the best relationship you've ever had when it was really working well. I want you to think about when you were the closest to God, felt the closest, when you were the most secure, the most at peace in your life. And then I want you to multiply that exponentially. And I want to tell you it doesn't even come close because it's way more than that. We're told in heaven that we are going to be, our, our bodies will be transformed. Some of us are looking forward to the day. And I'll tell you all the stuff you see on TV. I mean, they may have good intentions, maybe not, who knows. But all this idea that in heaven there's going to be a lot of little flying angels and we're all going to have halos and wings and harps, that's not it. That is not it. It will be more than we can comprehend. I I know that Scripture says it will be a place where there's un unencumbered worship, that there's unencumbered relationships, no walls, no, no masks, no uh, pretense to, to everything. You know, Revelation, the scripture says, there will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, No more garbage, no more stuff that weighs us down. For the old order of things has passed away. Heaven heaven will be perfect. Ran across a survey, U.S. News and World Report did a survey, and they asked people, do you think there's a hell? And and this struck me very interesting because 64% of Americans said yes. 25% 25% said no, and 11 were undecided. But I was kind of uh, shocked by the 64. But here's what I found interesting. When I talked to people and talked to Christians, usually they'll say, well, yes, I believe there's a hell. 
I just don't believe anybody goes there. Except, except, you know, and then they'll, they'll pick on, on something like serial killer types. They, they go to hell. But not, not anybody else. Scripture teaches there's a real place. Tells us what it's like. You know, Matthew 8, 13, uh, Matthew describes it as an outer darkness. A dark place. Sometimes I'm talking to people, they'll, they'll say things to me, they'll go, you know, I'm not sure I want to go to heaven. You know, I don't want to be around a bunch of Christians. I'd rather be with my friends, you know, where we could kind of party with our buds, you know. I always tell them, I say, you know what? Even if your friends are in hell, you will not know it. You know, 2 Thessalonians 1.9 talks about it being a, a place of complete isolation. Solitary confinement. You know, I mean, hell's a place where you're going to be free. You can do whatever you want to do. You're just going to do it alone. Matthew calls hell a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, the literal translation in the Greek is utter remorse and regret. That's where you get the gritting. You ever made a bad decision? You grit your teeth. And you're like, why did I do that? That's, that's what they're pushing at. You know, I had the opportunity to give my life to Christ. I heard, I heard the mess. I heard people talking about it. But I just pushed back. What was I thinking? That's what's going to be going on. You know, place of isolation, separation from God. You know, my, my prayer has always been that nobody here goes to hell. That's why we exist as a church. It's the main reason we exist is to reach people for Jesus Christ. And I know as I'm saying this, people, people will catch me and they'll go, yeah, but Damon, how, how can a good God throw people in hell? I mean, they just don't get it, you know. I, I can't believe that a good God would do that. Friends, God doesn't send anybody to hell. It's a choice people make. You know, we are made in the image of God. We have complete freedom at the end of it all. At the end of this existence, God will simply give us a greater measure of whatever it is that we desired while we were on this planet. He'll just give it to us for eternity. You know, if you bow a knee to Jesus Christ, you know, accept him as your savior, God recognizes the transaction. You know, God says, come on in, heaven's yours. But, but if you push back and you keep pushing back and you never complete the transaction, the whole time God's been going, I love you. You know, I, I sought you, I bought you, I sent my son, I did everything I could to reach you. But you rejected me. You, did, you just kept me at a distance. And so, I'm going to give you what you wanted. Eternal distance. We choose that. I will, I will never forget a guy named Chris. Uh, I played uh, 
hoops with this guy for years, but the first time I met Chris, um, he was pretty quiet, didn't say a whole lot, but incredible athlete. I would, I would tell you that he is the best basketball player I ever played ball with, hands down, and I played with several guys that played the NBA that were pros. This guy threw the chart. Over time, I got to know him, you know, started talking a little bit. And at one point, he found out I was a pastor. And then he got kind of guarded. <laughs> but over time, he kind of let down his guard with me. And I waited for the opportunity. And then one day, he kind of opened the door. And I remember saying to him, I said, what do you, what do you believe about God? He said, I don't. I don't believe in God. And then he proceeded to kind of lay out his philosophy of life to me. And it was a very lengthy conversation, an hour plus, and then he said things over uh, the next several weeks that proceeded. But basically, what he said to me was, well, we're supposed to respect people. We ought to be honest. We ought to take care of ourselves. This guy was a, a health nut plus. He believed in taking care of our planet so that it would be here for the next generation. And when he was all through and he kind of laid it out, I said to him, I said, well, it sounds like you got a lot of things right. Got a lot of things figured out. I said, you know, I'm starting a new series in a couple of weeks. And it's all about knowing God. And I said, I'd like you to come to church. I think it'd be informative. It'd help you. And um, he kind of looked down, and finally he goes, you know, I like you. I'll think about it. I said, all I can ask. Flash forward. That Sunday, I'm heading into service to speak, and I spot Chris. I said, hey, glad to see you, man. I'm not starting that series till next week. You know, the one we talked about? He goes, I know. I just wanted to check things out first. Flash forward. He came every week during that series. And it kind of started a journey for him. Every week at Hoops, he would get there early because he knew I was there already. And he would stay after. And he would talk to me. And there were times that I just listened to him. And there were times he had a list of questions. And I'd try and answer him. Or I'd hand him a book that he could read that would help him with that. And he devoured, devoured stuff. One day, I had a conversation with him that I later found out rocked his world and changed him. And the door was open, and I just said this to him. I said, what's your thoughts about eternity? And he goes, you know, I've been, I've been thinking about that. He says, I think you just die, and there's nothing. He says, I don't, I don't buy the heaven and hell thing. Don't buy that at all. And I said this to him. I said, let's just assume you're right. There is no heaven. There is no hell. 
I said, what do, what do I lose? And he just kind of looked at me. He didn't say a word. And then I said, Chris, what if I am right? And he got just really drawn in. And he finally is packing his gear up to leave. He goes, I have to think about that one. Flash forward. Over the next year, Chris rarely missed church. The guy sat over in the corner. He'd take notes. He started reading. He went and bought a Bible. He started reading it on a regular basis. And he always had questions for me. And I'll be honest. He asked me some questions. I go, I'll have to get back with you on that one. I'll have to do a little bit of study. One day after service, he walked over to me and says, Damon, I want Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I prayed with him right there. Baptized him a little bit later. This guy got serious. I mean, he had serious passion for God. Flash forward. This is a few years ago. I had moved down here at that point. Chris diagnosed with brain cancer. And friends, it took him fast. This guy that was a specimen of physical health in a matter of just a few months, and he was gone. His girlfriend emailed me, and uh, it was one of those letters you get that you just go, yay, God, and it breaks your heart at the same time, because in the letter, she just talked about his faith, that every day while he was dying, that he'd read his Bible as long as he's able. And when he couldn't read it anymore, he asked them to read it for him. And he encouraged his family and the friends and some of the guys I played hoops with that went, went to see him. And she said his last conversation, he was basically saying goodbye to his family. And he just said, you know, I'm going to miss you guys. But I'm okay. I'm not afraid. I am going home to be with my Savior, Jesus Christ. Flash forward. Have you made that transaction? Most important thing you'll ever do. Are you ready to die with no fear? Because the only way is when you know you got this right. When you know you have a Savior. You know, Paul writes, says, Oh, death, where's your sting? Because Paul understood that when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, sting's not there. Oh, I mean, we feel it here when we lose a loved one. But for that loved one, that has that relationship. No sting. No sting. None at all. We're going to have a word of prayer. Stand and sing together. We're going to celebrate in communion.
I'm just going to hang around on over here on the side. If you haven't taken that step, take it today. I'll tell you what I told Chris. What if I'm right? What if God's word's right? Don't put it off. You know, Christ died for you. He loves you. Take that step. Don't keep pushing back. I've lived life long enough to know we could walk out of here today and it may be the last time we see each other. I may drop over. You may get hit by a car. You may have a heart attack. You just never know. You never know. Let's stand and have a word of prayer together. God, we praise you. That this life is not the end of it all. That there's a day in eternity that um, we're all going to face. And God, I know many of us look forward to that day. We'll be reunited with people that are already gathered around your throne. People that we love. People that we long to be with. God, I pray that, um, because I know there are those here today that they haven't bowed a knee to you yet. Give them the wisdom to do that. God, those of us that have bowed a knee, we thank you that we can face this life. We can face death. We can face eternity. Knowing that we're yours. God, we praise you. We thank you for all things. And in all ways, God's people said,